I'd like to ask you to join me in acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet, the Turrbal and the Yagara people, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for being here. My name is Jo. I'm the Creative Director here at Metro Arts, and it's a great pleasure to have you here with us. In case you don't know, we are recording tonight because we're going to do a little bit of podcasting post-event. So if anyone's desperately upset about that, do let me know and we'll cut you out. <laughs> Tonight's um, session, I've asked the artists to look at their view of something. So whether it is literal or whether it is philosophical or something really dear to their heart. And so we have four amazing artists who are going to introduce you to something and explain their view. This is something I'm really kind of interested in at the moment. I heard something recently about eyewitness accounts and how uh, different eyewitnesses will uh, report the exact same thing completely differently. So I'm interested in people's perceptions and people's views. I had an incident a couple of months ago. I was driving back from Toowoomba late at night. My family are up in Toowoomba. And if you know Toowoomba, a lot of the roads are quite dark because you go through paddocks and there's real farms still and stuff like that. And um, as I came, just coming out of the Gatton Bypass, I was doing 100 kilometres an hour on the freeway and my headlights all of a sudden lit up a man standing in the middle of the freeway with his arms out like this. And I knew there was a car behind me because I'd just passed it and I knew there was a truck behind that car because I just passed that, and whether it's instinct or you know knowledge, I don't know, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to stop in time before hitting this man. So I swerved, and while I was swerving, I came really close to him, and it would have been less than a second, but I saw him, and I could tell you now every single detail of that man. He had the colour of his hair, the tattoos that were on his arm, um, that he was wearing no shirt, no shoes, and I wondered a lot about this afterwards. I wondered what he saw in that moment where he almost died. And I, I wondered what his, his point of view was, why he was there, what was wrong, what he was hoping to achieve. So I've been thinking a lot about this, what I see and what you see, what he saw. So maybe we'll have a bit of a discussion about that tonight. So it's my great pleasure to introduce our first artist tonight, Kinley. So Kinley Gray is a Brisbane-based artist who makes instructional, performative and experience-based works. Their practice uses metaphor and visual poetics to explore feeling and experience that intersects the intimately personal and cosmically reflective. Beautiful phrase. <laughs> Kinley graduated from QUT in 2014 and has exhibited in numerous public spaces, ARIES and galleries around Brisbane, including right here at Metro Arts. Please make Kinley welcome. Wonderful introduction. Is this on? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Thanks for sharing that story as well. Yeah, cool. All right. Set the tone. I'm very nervous. Forgive me if I stumble over my words. <clears throat> this is a love letter. I love you, but it's hard. I love your warmth and tenderness, your loyalty and silliness, 
I love how you're such a dag sometimes and you don't take yourself too seriously, except for when you do, which is a bit weird, but I understand and I do it too. I love your complexities and sensitivities. At times you feel impossible to navigate. And then other days it's so simple and easy and glorious. I love your intimacy. When we're all sticky with sweat and smelling of beer. When you're so hot, I can feel it thick in the back of my throat. I love us together. We've had some fucking sick times. (laughs) Some pretty shit times too, but I've always found solace in you. I remember daydreaming of you as a teenager, although I didn't really know you at all quite yet. And our short stays together were little glimpses into a future world that felt big with promise, where I would be happy and I'd be myself with you. And I didn't know what I would do, but I knew it could be anything. And here we are 10 years later, and though we've had our fair share of troubled times, I still love you, but it's hard. I cannot lie, I've wanted to leave you. At some points I really thought I was going to, but you've always been here, and whether I can always feel it or not, you've been good to me. Maybe one day I will leave. Oh, Brisbane, I love you. (laughs) But it's hard. (laughs) It's hard because most of my friends have left. They don't like you. They say you're boring. Nothing happens here. There's nothing to do. Or fair enough, they need to pursue things that just aren't available here. I go down to Melbourne or Sydney, visit some expats, meet new friends. I say I'm down from Brisbane. They don't try too hard to disguise their scoff. (laughs) Some even arrogantly toss at poor you or ew. (laughs) Their faces drop like the degrees overnight when I shrug and I say, Brisbane's great. (laughs) I guess they just don't get the Brisbane cool. (laughs) My family say, oh, I couldn't live here. I don't know how you can live here. The traffic, the roads, you can't find a park. Everything's expensive. Paying rent is wasting money. You may as well have a mortgage. The house next door to mine sold at auction the other week. 1.52 million. (laughs) And all this land is stolen. From the Turbul people to the north of the river and the Agra to the south. Mianjin. The sovereignty is never ceded. And the colonial fist still strangles and thumps the throttle of the brute. The brute's in blue, the brute's in office, corrupt and smiling, clean collars and dirty hands. Their boots are light to lift and heavy when they fall, like buildings in the night. And who's underfoot? And what are you anyway, Brisbane? A sprawling collection of burbs and dismodern buildings removed, rebuilt, renewed again and dated before they're even finished. A new world city reeking of council buzzwords and sold state assets and a river so foul even the bull sharks can't see in it. Are you a horse, a lion, or the noise they make? 
are you a firebird rising or a chicken in a bin? Are you Expo 88 or the weekend of Glen 20, wipe it clean? <laughs> Kills 99.9%. <laughs> Did you get that one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and why do I love you, Brisbane? Named after a colonial Scotsman astronomer too concerned with looking up to look around. And I'm guilty of that too. Indeed, my love for you, open mouth and eyes a gaze all too often in the ether in the golden late afternoon haze of the mountains high to the northeast in the crisp clarity of June skies. This is the first love letter I've written to you, Brisbane. But a couple of years ago, I wrote one for you to give to me. It was called Sky Magic. And that's when I started to realize just how important you are to me. I wrote an invitation for whoever wanted to come to go up to the Mount Cutha lookout, pop two bucks in the telescope, and under the weight of the weightless blue, search the cityscape past the Forex factory, between the cranes, among the roads and trees and cars, to find a banner I'd hung inside of my mate's share house in Milton. And the banner said, this feeling. Since then, this feeling... A sense of place has been the motivation of my practice and who I am to a great extent. And though I talk a lot about your physicality, Brisbane, your landscapes and sky space, it's also the people here, our community, that have held strong and hold strength against the brutes, the outside perceptions and all the bullshit that will forever be perpetrating and healing and perpetrating and healing. And I think of the art community specifically and how, without much funding or support against a persisting and hostile government culture is thriving, they, I, the ARI scene is booming, the art coming out of here really is something. I honestly didn't know how to describe it, so forgive me when I bumble through this paragraph. Um, <laughs> but it's earnest and thoughtful, and unlike what I've experienced elsewhere, there's so much support and encouragement of each other. I'm writing this in a park. I love an open and elevated space, of course I do. Your rolling terrain provides many. It's funny to go somewhere to look out at the city and the mountains and the sky and sit there and really I'm just looking within. Some guy saw me struggling with my lighter today. He walked over and gave me his and asked for a ciggy. We chatted about when drugs were good. His dad had just died of alcohol withdrawal. His liver became toxic and pumped his death all through him. We chatted about ice and seeing friends after a period of absence and them looking like the after photo in the before and after photos. This guy said to his friend, mate, you're gonna die soon. He's left me now and I'm thinking about the sky. It's funny how here right now contains everything this feeling. And so, Brisbane, for all your faults, your atrocious histories and troubled present, I still love you, but it's hard.
question or the questions with of all the issues, <laughs> all the issues in all the world. <laughs> Why this one? Yeah, it's not very important when you think about it. But maybe it is. Well, I guess when I was asked to do this and it was like, talk about something that's really important to you, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, there's lots of things that are really important to me, but how do I pick the one? Um, and I guess um, Brisbane is something I rant about a lot. And I had recently come back from Melbourne where I had a lot of eye rolls and I felt like I had to defend it a lot. And I was just like, you don't know. You don't know shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you don't know me. Um, that was not a very great answer, but I guess it's close to my heart. And re through in recent years, I've really realised, yeah, how important it is for me. What do you want us to get from? It felt, it felt almost like an impassioned plea to like come with you on this love affair journey. Is that? Do you think that's got something to do with it? I don't know. I mean. I guess the, th the main thing is that like you, you can love something even though you can see all the really bad things about it and all the troubled things and the things that are confusing and the things that aren't resolved and you know like I guess there's an element of feeling guilty about like okay bad example but I'm gonna run with it my favorite movie is Calamity Jane starring Doris Day. Um, it is hideously racist, like it's really badly racist, and, but I love it and I can't help it. And that's, I don't know, like how do you hold those two feelings? So, what do you love about it? Oh man, have you seen it? <laughs> it's a musical. <laughs> Yeah, so holding conflicting feelings about a thing, you know, love, hate. Um. That's real love, isn't it? When you can see the worst side of something and... Oh, you're such a romantic. <laughs> I am. What do you say to people like me when we come and go, oh, it's boring? Yeah. Well, I say, <laughs> shut up! <laughs> I don't know, I think Christmas is not boring, there's heaps of shit on and at risk of insulting you, if you can't find something on, maybe you're boring. <laughs> like, My mum used to say only boring people are bored. What do we do to change people's perceptions? Yeah, yeah, this is a good question. Because um, I think with, like, Brisbane as a city has all the ingredients to have a great... Um, outward reputation but we don't and I think like through writing that letter and stuff I'm like it's a lot to do with this like history a history that's still playing out now it's not over um, you know uh, from the BLD Peterson era and stuff and all of Queensland essentially getting to be the police state of the country and um, you know got a lot of backwards sort of reputations and stuff um, I think I, I get a bit peeved when there um, are higher institutions and, you know, places with money and the places who are pushing, I guess, the upper outward p public culture of a place and instead of putting the money and the support into the local communities to develop local culture, essentially, it's all imported. And I think that doesn't help us much.
Mm. Is that almost like the cultural cringe? You know, like it's like our own community saying we're not good enough in a way. Yeah, maybe. as a city. Would that help, do you think, if the major institutions were to be more supportive of the local communities? I think so. I think it would... I mean, we've got the goods. We just, you know, the supports and the platforms, you know, we got some, but it just... I guess it's a bit disheartening when more often than not, um, you know, you've got the big-name shows at Goma or, you know, yada, yada, and they're all, you know, stuff brought in. And I think that, like... I guess I'm talking specifically arts here, um, but yeah, we've we've got so many talented people from from Brisbane, from regional Queensland especially, and there's like where is where is that connection, the support, the you know bringing it up from from home. What if my provocation to you then was that there are so many interesting interesting things happening here on the ground level because we're ignored in hmm. a sense. Well, that's Valid, I'd say. Yeah, no, it's true. I just think about that sometimes, you know, and where's the middle, you know, where's the middle ground? It's almost that, you know, every time we do travel, you go to Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, etc., you come back and you're like, hey, there's, there's good stuff here. Yeah. But it's almost, it's almost because we've forgotten that the experimental still lives on and thrives in this city somewhat. That's a really good point, actually. I feel like being... Like um, I guess when things stay at, a, at more of a grassroots or underground level, it does give us the liberties to be able to talk about things that you may not be able to talk about in other contexts, or be super experimental and risky and whatever, and you know, like put put work on in a house show where people might potentially get injured or something, and like you know, you can do it, and it's awesome. And yeah, it is a bit, I guess, tiring when you go to the same galleries in Melbourne and Sydney and you're seeing the same kind of art over and over and it's all like derivative and dry and you're like, snooze. It's not getting promoted in yeah. cities, right? <laughs> I mean, like, no offence or whatever, but... <laughs> Does anyone out there have any... Does someone want to or... roast me if they're from somewhere else? <laughs> Go for it. Do we have a show of hands for who loves Brisbane? Does anyone fall into the Briggs Boring camp? <laughs> I'm the only one in the room. Wow. This is good. Things have changed, I feel. Or maybe this is just those who are left. No? <laughs> Kinley, have you always been in love with Brisbane? Like, was it love at first sight? I did dream about moving to Brisbane when I was all through my teens. I grew up in a country town and the goal was just like, graduate school, save money, move to Brisbane. That was it. Didn't know what I was going to do past then. I actually thought the world was going to end before I had to decide. So I enrolled in art at uni because I was like, who cares what I do? The world's going to end anyway. <laughs> Next minute. <laughs> anyway, yeah. And then I got here and I had a ball for a few years and then it did get to a period when I was like, you know, everyone's moving and I was like, oh, well, I don't want to be left here and I've got no friends and everyone's gone. And now apparently, like, you know, Hobart's the cool place now, so, <laughs> you know, you might catch me in six months down living there. <laughs> you know, 
One more. Would you leave? Brisbane? Yeah. Or the stage? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been could you? (laughs) I think I will leave. I think I will leave one day, but not because I hate it, because I love it too much. Now I have the pleasure of introducing um, Susan. So Susan Hawkins is an interdisciplinary artist who splits her time between Melbourne and Brisbane, controversial, Um, graduating from a Bachelor of Fine Arts um, at Queensland College of Art in 2004 also. Um, She is a mother of four boys and today will be presenting a spoken word piece on the struggle between a mother and a son who fell through the safety net with um, a learning difficulty that has impacted the whole family. Please join me in welcoming Susan. Hi, out there. <laughs> okay, so I'm doing, is, am I too close? Uh, it's dramatising spoken word, and I'll be playing two characters in the dramatisation. I am moving through thick fog. I know where I'm supposed to be going, but I've lost the directions. Daytime is noisy. I have a non-stop conversation going on in my head. Nighttime is quiet, and I can think. I get carried away with activities. I have more alarms set to remind me to go to bed than I do to wake up in the morning. You should try writing with your other hand. Drive a car with no power steering. Studying one subject at uni is like a full study load. It's a constant struggle to remember, to remember what needs to be done next, what needs to come first, what I need to bring for an appointment, when an appointment is, what time I need to leave. I can have a dozen colour-coded stick notes on the wall, but as soon as I look away, I just forget what's on them. When a task isn't sufficiently stimulating me, I lack the focus to address it. It ends up becoming an unmanageable source of anxiety. I have excellent general knowledge and can tell you in detail things, but I can't tell that you stopped listening five minutes ago. I am impulsive, this can be problematic, risky behaviour, bad food choices, impulsive buying, but I'm fun and a lot younger than my years. And then this is the other person. (laughs) 
you have an appointment this morning. Can you please get out of bed? You've missed the appointment again. Can you just answer your phone? Can you just answer the question? You don't seem to hear me or listen. You don't follow through on what you said you would do. Remember the time you mowed the lawn and I came out and there was a great big anarchy sign mowed in the middle of the lawn? It takes everything I have to keep supporting you. Your behaviour impacts on me. It has me reflecting on my behaviour. I had to learn a new way of being. Me, the mother beast, had to learn about how to be around a disability. Things are changing, but I know why people fall through the cracks. It really takes something. A committed group of people. A real committed group of people. My view from here is you may have to look at the change in yourself to see a change in someone else. Thank you. The process of you coming um, through our different conversations we've had over the last few weeks to where you ended up today has been really fascinating. Could you give us a bit of that story, like how Certainly. where you started it and then how you yeah. kind of progressed to that? So when Jo invited me to be on the panel, she said it should be something that you're passionate about. And I thought back over time what I was passionate about, what really got me going. And it was news of asylum seekers, children in detention, uh, a child in Guantanamo Bay. And even though I'm passionate about those things, I'm not an authority on them. So I saw Courtney and I told her a little bit about the sun and she said, do you think you would do a personal piece? And I said, no, I wouldn't. No way. No way, because being a fine artist, you stay professional to your practice. You don't really bring your d domestic business to your work. Well, you do if that's what your work's about. And my work is about family, but it's about family history. Like, the, the, my son is 28 years old. He only got diagnosed a year ago. So even though it's been an ongoing thing, I've only been learning about the tools in the last year... So I went away and thought about it and I thought actually I should just talk about the sun because I'm not an authority on all those other things. Even though I'm passionate about it, I don't do anything about it. And with the doing it about the latest events in my life, I could talk about because I've got personal experience. Do you think... Um I think it's interesting when you start large and then you hone it into a personal and then see how the bigger impacts of that exist. Do you think that that relates to this? You know, like you've been thinking about, throughout all of our conversations, thinking about kids falling through the cracks. Like that's been, been the reoccurring kind of 
theme for yes, you. And right. I think it's been interesting for me to see you go from this to this and then back out to that once again. Yeah, well, I went home and tried to research about um, children in... Um, like Dondale and places like that, and it was just so big. But I do think at, there's a big percentage of children in um, institutionalised because of a learning difficulty that got looked like bad behaviour, and that's where they landed. So, yeah, when I started looking big... To narrow it down to 10 minutes, I just thought it just has to be very focused. Do you think that there's any subconscious interest for you in that bigger issue? You know, it's like if your son didn't have the support of, you, you know, his mm. parents, mm. do you know, you've thought about that, like the safety net, who gets the safety net and who doesn't? Mm. Yeah. Uh, the subconscious of me actually caring that there's a 15-year-old in Guantanamo Bay or in Dondale or in detention centres, yeah, it, it might be subconscious, but I, I do have a strong unjust radar and I just think it's completely unjust. Do you think... It's interesting that, you know, you raised as well, like, I'm not an authority, so I can't speak on that. Do we have to be authorities to be really pissed off about an injustice in the world? Like, I think that's really interesting that we're kind of told that in us, you know, in many instances, aren't we? That we don't have all the facts, or who are we to say that? Yeah, I just feel, even though I'm passionate about it, I'm not in any sort of action. So mm. that stopped me as well. Whereas I am in action around this topic. Mm. Mm. And it's potentially related. Like, I, I tried to do a little bit of looking into statistics. It's pretty abstract, and some of the studies are quite old. But it seems that about 25% of young people and children have been diagnosed, so that's not even talking about young people who haven't had a diagnosis, have been diagnosed with some form of learning disability, which is huge, right? So that's one quarter of our young generation that is walking around, you know, not being... Um, taken into account when it comes to... Because you know what, you, you and I have spoken about schooling and what happens at schooling and how there's a lack of support for different ways of learning. You know, we don't even have to talk about... It's just that our school system has one, one structure and that if, you know, young people don't adhere to that, they fall through the cracks. Yeah, that's right. I think they're, they're trying to be supported, but... In this case, there's six people behind this one child. Like, I just... They need a lot of support, and I just don't know how much support can be offered. Um, does your, do you and your son and your family have support from external, external means? self-found support like mm -hmm. the psychiatrist and the ADHD coach mm -hmm. so but it had to come from us we were mm -hmm. never sent there by anybody you had to do your own research and find your own way with it mm -hmm. I think children today at school might have there might be a higher percentage picked up mm -hmm. I hope so anyway
And similarly to the question I asked Kinley, I suppose, is what do you want us to take from this? Like, what, what is your hope for the people listening to you? If there is someone with a learning difficulty, seek the help yourself. Mm-hmm. Just go all, pull out all stops to get the help that you need. So it's more about it demystifying, in a way. Mm. Let's talk about it. You know, I was actually in the office today talking um, with a colleague who has potential endometriosis. This is off topic, but mm. you know, talk talking about the things we don't talk about. And a, a male colleague came in, and we kept talking about it because I think both of us felt like this is something that needs to be talked about. You know, and that the fact that so many women suffer from this. Mm. But it's still, you know, something we feel we should be hush-hush about. And it's like bringing all of these things into the open means that we can um, break down maybe the dominant, like, normative paradigms that we're operating in. And so there's not... We're kind of shifting what's normal, I suppose. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's what Joe's intention was. Who knows? (laughs) Does anyone have any questions, comments for Susan? No, this is all the things I've learnt. Yeah, it is not a collaboration with him. He does not know I do. <laughs> no, it's all the things that I've now learned about him. I didn't know that's what he was going through. Mm. So, is, who are you learning this from? Are you learning it in process? Are you learning it from him? Are you learning it from your other sons and the way he, they interact with him? Or from your husband? So... I've got four sons, one of the young... So the eldest son's got the disability, the youngest son and my husband have stepped right up to be a stand for it, for the eldest one. And plus, getting diagnosed was a huge thing because we just didn't know what we would... Well, I didn't know what we were dealing with. And the ADHD coach... He's amazing. He just talks his language. And and he invited us along. And when he first went to the ADHD coach, he, we said, oh, can we, can we come? He went, no, you go and get your own coach. This guy's mine. <laughs> and he was like, just didn't want us in any part of it. But just recently, we've gone with him. And the ADHD coach has, you know, told us more about how to be around him. Yeah, so he's come a long way. Um, thank you. That reminds me a lot of my mom and my sister's relationship. Actually, so I've been a little teary during when you were talking to us. Like, yeah, I could relate to that from as someone who sees that happen and hears them talk about it. Um, so, thank you. Um, I was wondering about the diagnosis. If it, um, like, it sounds like it was a really positive thing. Was there anything that came through the diagnosis that, like, I could, like, I guess. What I wonder is, like, through diagnosis for some people, if then they feel, like, institutionalised by being diagnosed. No, he was um, set free yeah. because he knew something was wrong with him, wrong with him but he, he, they say that ADHD kids are just out there bouncing off the world. They just don't fit. And for him to get diagnosed, his uncle came around and he went, Hey, Uncle Rob, I've got the ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> he was very 
finally had something and coupled with having the ADHD coach who's giving him the tools to get through it. Yeah, we started uni and the ADHD coach said, I'll come along with you and we'll go to the learning um, support people and yeah. <laughs> okay, let's... <laughs> to introduce Nassim, um, who I can't pronounce her surname, but in my, it's Nassim Kosbavi, um, is a new generation of Iranian migrants to Australia, applying her educational, experimental and professional theatre backgrounds in Iran to shape a new professional company here in Australia. Her company, um, Baran, is founded on one of the most basic philosophies of theatre, a means of dialogue. Born in the south of Iran, um, Nassim is Brisbane based, a Brisbane-based writer and director. In her work, she investigates possible ways for interactive theatre while keeping a poetic tone. She is specifically interested in experimenting with modern techniques to achieve a dialogue between Iranian traditional theatre elements and, contemporary, and the contemporary theatre world. In this dialogue, the modern rereading, reconstruction, and dramatization of Persian classical works of literature have had a significant place. Thank you. Excellent. Hello. Uh, I'm going to read a translation of my uh, some poetries in English and uh, one in Farsi with translation in English. Being as whole as those who have clouded the waters, I am not. As whole as those children who knew not death, I must detach my lips from grace. For breathing is the act of forgetting. Me being hooked on a gulf, colorless, formless, and the sharpness of the rocks has given my blood to a sea that reaches to the Pacific Ocean. I am a Pacific Ocean. All items, except for lunacy, at the border control, veggies, gipo, kebab, and eggplants marinated in tomato, are prepared for my guests, and the backup gesture ready to play a melody. Being as whole as the children whose mouths taste salty of blood or the sea, and snow-white helmet cleans the dust thrown at their eyes. To live is to shut the eyes. The backup jester is playing the harmonious tune for serving dinner, everything except for the uh, untimely lament is at the border control. I am an ocean, Pacific, that would deliver your corpses one by one to a safe coast, breathless, with a smile. 
two. I am at the end of this day, in so far as clouds stand high and countless soldiers die under its trees. Number three. I said, until you get used to the calendar of these southern trees, countless brides, countless birds have migrated from your fingers, and what you see is not the attack of the crews from Tehran. It is the endless dialogue of the sky with the bats. You said, hang your voice from, your, from my throat at, uh, in this wind guest wind gust. My ancestress uh, heredity cycle has bound these everlast summer trees by the root, and the morning is sufficed by the ritual agitation in the news. I said, I make a chain out of your voice with the firm black wings and set it free in the fighter jet that sends humans back to their own hell. Maybe snow will brighten the day for these crowd-ravaged moths. You said, it is my so-and-so tooth on the upper right side, side which constantly uh, devi deviates from the public order and press pressure and locks itself against the lower te teeth of forgetfulness. The wandering teacher reads the text of peace and the jaw is released for a moment. I said, when the sky pours purple over the bodies of these southern trees, I will be a hasty, it will be a hasty immigration that we will have missed. Drag your corpse out of the ritual market of the news. You said, what do you know of agony? I said, the coast has turned its safe side towards the seagulls. I am stricken by my own insecurities in the Middle East. You said, my friend, what do you know of rotting wound that rots and rot? I said, let all these wandering words be the misspelling of departure. I am going to read number four in Farsi first. ما جهان باختگانی بودیم با جسدهامان در سراوشی به جهان تکیه بر سنگی که بهمن از قل فرود آورده و ماهیان گوشت خار اندامان را تجزیه می کنند. طوفان وعده هر روزمان است. وعده آسمانی که خورشیدش محل مذاکرتان است حالا گفتیم آقا 
همین که شب به پهنای شانمان رسیده است همین که حالا اینجا کنار این زمستان توقف کن را به آواز خانده ایم همین که پنجره ها در سراشی به جهان گفتگوی مخدوشی را آغاز کردند همین که ما قهرمانانه در دهان هم می شاشیم همین که روی دست های روز جسد هامان بالا و پایین می روند و مادران داغدار صورتشان را روی خاک قبر ها می مالند سپاس که نبودگی و رنج را به تصاوی بین ما تقسیم می کنید ما جهان باختگانی که خطوط را جابجا جا می کنیم مرز ها را نه که بدن هامان را جابجا جا می کنیم خواب ها را با خواب ها و طوفان وعده هر روزمان است آقا همین که جسد هامان را واگذارده این تا از فسیل و نفت به جریان ج... به شریان جهان سرازیر شود همین که پاسبان های مرزیمان از بمقمه های خالی شراب می نوشند همین که دست هامان زخم خار گل هایی است که سربازان بر سر تفنگ هایشان گذاردن به سربازانت بگو تنها دیوانگان به ما شلیک می کنند Bereft of the world we are, with our corpses on the slope of the globe, resting against a boulder the lands, landslides has landed from the peak, and the flesh-eating fish are decomposing our bodies. A storm is our daily promised meal. In a promised sky, The sun is now your bargaining site. We said, Sir, insofar as the night has reached, uh, has reached the breadth of our shoulders, insofar as now, here, we have sung, insofar as windows and the windows and the slope of the globe have begun a distorted dialogue, In so far as we, heroically urinate in the mouth of each other, in so far as on the hands of the day our corpses raise and fall and the morning moms rubs their faces on the ground of the graves, Thank you for the equal distribution of absence and agony. We, briefed of the world, who displace lines, not borders, who displace our bodies, sleep with sleep, and storm is our daily promised meal. Sir, In so far as we have yielded a corpse so that from our fossils oil would flow in the uh, arteries of the world. In so far as our border patrols drink wine from empty flasks. In so far as our hands are bruised by the throne of the roses the soldiers have placed in their guns. Tell your soldiers. Only the loonies shoot at the moon.
Hello everyone, I'm Matt of Courtney and Matt and I'm going to ask Nassim one of or two of the many mind-opening questions I have. Thank you. Um, I, w I would like to hear you talk about why you translate your poems. Because uh, I need to read them for more than uh, Farsi speakers. <laughs> And um, is do you feel that they are poems to be read or poems to be heard? Uh, actually, I believe uh, poem is better to be read. Uh -huh. uh, but I can say if you if you write it in a, in an order that could help audience to follow it and read it mm -hmm. very well. I think because you can read and come back and read again, so I would prefer sometimes to be read by audience. But mm -hmm. yeah. Do you ever um, hear in your head when you've written a, a poem in Farsi and you've translated it to English and then somebody else has read it to themselves privately, do you imagine that, that your poem is now in an Aka Aussie accent? <laughs> yeah, actually, I didn't translate the poems myself. I, uh, I uh, asked one of my friends help, who helped me, and then I asked my, another friend who's Australian uh, to edit them. And first time he was talking about them with me, he has a strong... <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the accent, yeah. And did you like it? Yeah. <laughs> I, le I learned English here. I'm still a learner. So you're but, learning yeah. Australian. I think. <laughs> um, the, the images are really confronting in a way because I've never been to war. I've never had first-hand, or mostly what I know about images like fish assisting the rotting process and heroically urinating uh, are from Hollywood movies. And there's somehow like a way that you're sharing the story makes me realize first how much I don't know, but secondarily how romanticized the things are that I do know. And I wonder, I'm really interested to hear how you try and how you construct your writing so that it's, it stays very personal rather than becoming uh, like a universal war story, that it's actually about a personal experience that somebody can have and then empathize with. Um. I should check with you if Please. I understood yeah. your question very well. You mean uh, how I try to don't keep it uh, personal? Or well, it feels like it is very personal, and that's why it is powerful. Uh, I think uh, it's per it's personal, but at the same time, it's not personal. Mm. If it was personal, I should keep it in mm. my cardboard. Mm -hmm. So, it's not personal. So why, why do you not keep it in your cupboard? Because 
we all need to say something. We, have to <laughs> mm-hmm. we need, we should talk about something lovely. Mm. Mm. War? War. Is lovely? Ah, uh, loudly. Oh, loudly. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, no. You spoke well, I listened poorly. Say it? <laughs> <laughs> That's all on me. You spoke well. And I listened poorly. Ah. Yeah, I think war and all conflicts around the world these days are really important. Mm. Especially when uh, lots of hardliners are uh, trying to, how can I say, change the language of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and make it less personal? Yeah. Mm. So make it like the for me before that I could say most of my uh, poetry is I can't say uh, poetry has a theme but Mm. the theme or subject of my poetry is before wasn't so kind of political but Mm. now now I can't think anything else sometimes Mm. because you just need to you don't want to be floated in the news, but you see what's going on. You're asking what's going on around the world. Mm. Um, I saw Nassim's show last night uh, downstairs, and it was um, personal and moving, but it felt... I, I'm just I'm keen to hear from you when you choose to write a poem and when you choose to write a play or when you choose to perform theatre and how you make the decisions about which story will resonate best with people? For me, uh, my all works, every work starts with a kind of poetry line. Mm -hmm. But then I can see if it's should be uh, a piece of uh, writing, mm. should be a play, should be a performance, or should be a fiction story, short story, or stay as a poem. Mm. So I think the work, say itself, mm. has a potential to be a performance, or now it's a, it's a free, shapeless yeah. writing. Is it hard what? to make work? <laughs> to make work? Yeah. It's a hard question, actually. It's hard to answer. I know. Is it hard? What do you think? You're making as well. <laughs> I guess because the story you told last night, it really focused that in some situations, people pay a, a large price for doing what they think is important. And uh, you're speaking through poetry or through dialogue, through plays, um, truths that are very what you think is important and significant. And I just wonder about the the price that you're paying for that and how it feels to do this work. I think um, uh, it's it's hard somehow, but. Uh, you feel released after that. Mm. You have something, it's heavy. You, are, you have to carry it. Mm. Uh, but when you 
tell it. Okay, I put mm. it away. Mm. And maybe some other people can yeah. help you carry it. Yeah, and you put it and picking something new. Oh, that's nice. Uh, last question. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does the world look like if you write all of the works and you share them with all of the people and people listen to you? Like, what is the change that you hope happens from your art? Mm. Uh, I can be sentimental for few moments. Yes, please. And uh, not think only my work. I can imagine if many artists and writers had enough voice, mm. uh, probably we could move from this monologue to a real dialogue. Mm. The, the world could be a better place uh, to live in for everyone, not only few people. Mm. That's my hope, but it's, <laughs> it's a dream. It's a dream. Is there one or two questions from anybody in the audience? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering why you chose to read the last one in both languages. Oh, last one, uh, it's very very painful for myself. I wanted to choose one of them to read Farsi for you if there is any difference between uh, listening to Farsi version of a poetry and English at the same time. Uh, and also, I choose that because it has, it's very emotional for myself. Mm, yeah, and uh, to see, to to give you the, the opportunity to compare both texts with it, just listening. I know you didn't understand Farsi. Yeah. It came across because I thought, like, is it more emotionally evocative for you to read it in Farsi? Do you feel more emotional connection when you read a poem yeah. in Farsi? Yeah. Yeah, see. I Freedom is changing. The most painful part of translating is uh, missing uh, your claim with the structure of the language. The, this um, cons this construction of the language, actually. You've played with form, you invented some new words, they're not trans. That you can you can translate them into another language. Thank you, Nasim. Thank you. And next up we have Martin Coots.
He's an interdisciplinary artist based in Melbourne, and he's here in Brisbane with his work Shell Game, which I experienced yesterday. Um, that's not what he's doing tonight. Shell Game is part walking tour of corporate Brisbane and part musing on the South China Sea in the uh, construct of a tarot card reading. But tonight you'll hear a lot more about a lot of contextualising around that. So let's welcome Martin. So that's where I'm going to start tonight. Um, so this is an aerial photograph of a reef in the South China Sea um, called Subi Reef. This was taken on July 27th, 2012. Uh, this was taken on August 8th, 2012. This was taken on January 8th, 2014. This was taken uh, January 26th, 2015. This was taken March 5th, 2015. This was taken March 17th, 2015. This was taken June the 5th, 2015. This was taken September the 3rd, 2015. This was taken the 24th of July 2016. So just to go just to go back to 2012, that's what it looked like in 2012, and that's what it looks like now. It probably is built up a little bit more. So this is a Chinese-occupied island in the South China Sea, and over the past five years, the Chinese have been pretty steadily. Uh, dredging sand out of the South China Sea and then placing it onto the top of the island and then building concrete structures on the top of the island. And this is all about a power grab in the South China Sea. Um, as you can see, there's like radars, there's hangars for planes, there's a, there's a runway, there's all sorts of things um, that are happening there. Um, this is, so just for context, this is the South China Sea. You can see the countries around it, Vietnam, Philippines, China, Taiwan, Indonesia. Um, this is the amount of natural gas that flows through the Ch South China Sea. So it's in the trillions. Two-thirds of the natural gas in the world flows through this region. Um, 
two million barrels of oil need to land on the shores of Japan every single day just to keep the lights on, and they all flow through here. So you can imagine anyone that has control over the Spratly Islands, right there in the centre, has control over all of those shipping lanes and all of the energy and trade. There's also oil and gas that is underneath the South China Sea as well that hasn't been tapped yet and hasn't been claimed. Um, this is oil coming from the Middle East through into um, East Asia. Um, this is the Nine Dash Line. China claims everything within the South China Sea. There's a lot of countries that claim little bits, but China claims the whole thing. Um, this, is a this is a photograph of a Taiwanese pop, st a Taiwanese pop star who's in a K-pop band. Um, her name is uh, Zhu Yu, um, and she... Um, she got into real trouble with the Chinese because she decided to wave a Taiwanese flag. So she, so it was, it was on a Japanese um, TV program. It's a K-pop band called Twice. They've got um, five members that are um, from Korea. They've got three or four members that are from um, Japan, and then there's one member from Taiwan. And she waved a Taiwanese flag on Japanese TV, and the. Chinese press um, harangued her so much that she then had to apologise on national TV for waving the Taiwanese flag. Um, and it's kind of, as you can see, it sort of looks like a ransom note or something like that. Um, the very next day was actually the Taiwanese presidential election and the Taiwanese president um, had to come out and say, um, so you should not have apologised for being Taiwanese, that's really not on. Um, but as a consequence of that, um, this woman was elected, Tsai Ing-wen, um, in a landslide because people were so angry about China getting involved in Taiwanese affairs. Um, she is the first, she's the first woman in any Chinese-speaking country to be elected, um, and she's the first um, Taiwanese female president. Um, Chinese... Um, Chinese netizens then went online um, and they somehow they jumped over the Great Firewall and they got onto Facebook and they put about 35,000 posts onto Tsai Ing-wen's Facebook um, page, um, including um, pictures like this. Um, these are mangoes. Um, the Chinese have also... Um, boycotted trade with um, a boycotted mango trade with Philippines because of their stance in the South China Sea which is basically claiming some of the islands that they claim. Um, again um, netizens have gone online and said things like we need to starve the Philippines to death um, uh, yeah we, we need to stop buying mangoes from um, the Philippines, we should buy them all from Thailand um, and that's, that's a um, quote uh, sort of against it. Um, and the Philippines sort of um, fought back with um, a meme of their own, which is um, Chexit, which is basically China, get out of the South China Sea. Um, and that's the, that's the Spratly Islands. And you can see um, it's very, very tight, very, very close, and there's lots of different countries that claim all of those different um, reefs and islands. Um, so the reason, the reason that I want to talk about all of that, how many of you knew any of that? Some of it, a little bit, 
Yeah. So this is our region. This is where we live. We should really know all of that. That's part of who we are. But somehow we seem to know more about what um, William and Harry are doing than what is happening in our own region. So in, um, in 1992, um, Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister at the time, um, made a landmark speech called Australia in Asia. And, um, called, and it was also called Knowing Who We Are. He said, we don't go to Asia cap in hand, we go as we are, not with the ghost of empire about us, not a vicar of Europe or as a US deputy, but unambivalently, sure of who we are and what we stand for. Um, in that speech, he also talked about John Curtin, who took us, took troops away from the UK and then brought them back to Australia to try and protect it against the Japanese. And it was a, it was a landmark um, process for Australia because it was the first time we stood up to it, the UK and looked somewhere else for protection. Um, Chinese people have been in Australia since the 1840s. Um, they came for the gold rush and they've been here ever since. Um, unfortunately, we have a very um, difficult relationship with Asian people in this country. This, is, um, this was actually in the Brisbane Courier, which, which preceded the Brisbane Courier Mail at the time. Um, of course, the White Australia policy was around as well that, that um, was stopping um, Asian people from coming to the country through a um, testing process. Um, and even when um, Vietnamese migration happened um, through um, Gough Whitlam and then after that through Malcolm Fraser, there were still people against um, Vietnamese people coming here. Um, our current relationship with Asia um, sometimes extends to um, going to Bali and going to Thailand um, in this sort of fashion. Um, so I guess the final thing I want to say is um, just in the last week or so, uh, America has sort of ceded the field to China in a way, um, pulling out of a climate accord, and China is now the leader. Basically, they are the leader. And what do we? What sort of relationship do we have with China? What is our connection to China? And um, how are we going to move forward into this Asian century, as they call it? Um, Um, so if, if we, as Paul Keating's, um, say, yeah, as, as Paul Keating said, we, we know who we are and we know what we stand for. So my question is, do we really know who we are and do we really know what we stand for as we move forward? Thank you. The other, the other, one of the other things that Paul Keating says was, uh, "No great country um, has the other has another country's flag in the corner of their flag." And 
and it's true, it's true. Look at our flag, it's ridiculous. Like, we have someone else's country in the corner of our own flag. We also share those stars with lots of other people. We do, we do. We don't own the Southern Cross. Yeah, it's true. Man, I um, am very curious to know where we can look, if you have any ideas on where we can look for who we are. Because we're not going to invent it. We're going to appropriate something from somewhere. Where would be a good place to start looking? Yeah, well, I mean, when, when I started thinking about the, the provocation, it's like, well, you know, your view from here, and I was thinking about what here meant. And for me, because I'm based in Melbourne, um, here means Wurundjeri country. Um, so, and to be honest, like, that is the only thing that is truly Australian. So if we'd look anywhere for something that is truly Australian, that would be it. Yeah. Good call. I have a curiosity about how far back and how far forward we imagine when we're talking about land grabs. Because it's a good point that you bring up that what China did with that island that you spoke about is arrive and put a bunch of shit down and use that as demonstration of ownership, which is exactly what the first fleet of Australians did as well arrive and put shit down and claim that as ownership. Um, but it's also what all humans have done for all of time around every part of the world. So I wonder... Um, I guess I wonder... We, we have to, I'm proposing that we have to choose a very specific time frame if we're speaking of them and us. And that's demonstrated in the land grab that if China was still occupying Vietnam and was doing that land grab, then it wouldn't be China versus Vietnam. It would be... All of that, that would still be a single nation. And is Australia ever going to be Asia? Or are the Philippines going to leave Asia and become part of the islands? And then the Filipino people will not be Asian anymore. Like, it's so messy. I wonder how we can possibly think, are we beyond nations? Is this really what is, like, the only outcome? Your thoughts? <laughs> um, I, think, I think, unfortunately, now we're locked into this sort of state-based structure that is just so prevalent and it's, like, so hard to get away from. And nationalism is caught up in that. So it's really hard to kind of break the gridlock of, of that. Um, I actually had a, a session with um, Jane today <laughs> um, uh, for Shell Game and some, one of the cards, so it's a tarot reading, and one of the cards is, is about uh, a very early version of the South China Sea where there were no states, there were no nations. And basically there were just these sort of sea gypsies that would travel from port to port and trade things. And there's been the same pottery found in Japan and Northern Australia, um, so that, that far north and that far south, from, from all the way in Madagascar to all the way in Easter Island. So there's this kind of trading network that had been happening. And um, what's the possibility that we could get back to a place where it is just all trading and, and all kind of free and easy in that way? It just doesn't seem realistic. Like, the state structure is, is so kind of locked and... 
and the way that we think about nations and the way that we think about nationalism is just so kind of prevalent. So, um, yeah, I wish I wish there was other ways in which we could we could operate, but unfortunately, we're just caught in this in this structure. Is the shell game working beyond that structure? Uh, the work itself, do you mean? Yeah. Um, I'm tarot, not sure, is it? Well, tarot is somehow hypothetical. Mm. Take it or leave it. It's not. It's and but if you wrap up factual renditions of accepted authorities within a hypothetical game, proposing your potential personal future, mm. then you're reminding people that. Um, our ideas of sovereignty have to be agreed before they can be recognised. Like Taiwan is still not recognised as separate from China. Mm -hmm. um, I had a discussion with River Lin when he was here earlier this year and he was speaking about never considering himself an Asian man until he left Asia and then being informed that he was an Asian man. And so I wonder, have you been to any of these islands? No, it's very hard to get to those islands. Yeah, with the blockades, it's very hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wonder if you would be comfortable if Australia become part of Asia. If you, if do you, if you thought, if you think you would ever be like, I'm Asian now. <laughs> uh, well, I don't. I don't yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if that's actually possible, but I just think it would be. It would be great if we had a better understanding of our neighbours. I mean, isn't isn't that just what we want generally? I, th I feel like we, you know, we do still know more about the royals than we do about Xi Jinping, the the Chinese leader. I mean, how is that even possible? I just don't understand. So, with the effort of the um, Al Gore PowerPoint. <laughs> and with the shell game and how gentle the dispersal of all that information is what's your biggest hope for the efforts that you're putting in the efforts with the work itself with, with being an artisan out of all the choices pulling this into the discussion this particular thing I mean, I think that, the, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit about the stuff that I just talked about, about our, our connection and our, 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 our um, cultural understanding of, of who, who we are next to the people that are, are an, an, our neighbours. I think the work shell game itself is, is, a, is a bit more about... It's a bit com more of a conversation about the future and about prediction and about the way that we are in the world. Mm. So, um, but yeah... I think those two things are sort of separate, but obviously connected as well. Mm. Can I answer your question? No, sure. that's Sorry. what I was just working out. Yeah, okay. So what does is, what is the world look like once we get beyond this current shit situation? If we get to a better, less shit situation, what is that better, less shitness? Um, well, I think it's, as Nassim put it better than I could ever say it like it's it's moving from a monologue to a dialogue mm. well, we need to start learning some other languages well that's that's the other thing like um, Asian language uptake in Australia has declined like there is six percent uh, of high school students take an Asian language 
and that's just that's dropped. That's massively dropped. So why is that? You know. And how how do you consider the land grab happening out there with a bunch of islands in relationship to land grabs that are happening within Australia within very legal structures from either real estate conglomerates that are buying land for profit or international interests that are buying land and being owned, so Australian land, being stolen and then sold to international nations that we fought to not own the land but are now owning the land. Like this messy land grab that continues to happen but is more legal. How do you... How do you let them be tangible in your discussions? <laughs> um, I don't know, is the answer. <laughs> I haven't really considered it. I mean, we had a discussion yesterday while you're doing the work that when I was growing up, there was a really big thing about, you know, the Japanese are all coming here and they're all just buying a lot of land in Queensland and it's terrible and we should, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and now that's completely forgotten about. Like, I can't even... I don't hear that on the news. I don't even know if that even is a thing anymore. Um, but I, I haven't drawn any connections directly between. Yeah, I mean the only thing, the only connection would be, as you said, look the, the Aboriginal connection, or, or just that it's all territory, like it's all just stuff that we have to own because it's of strategic value or it's of monetary value or there's oil under it or something like that. The only, you know, when the when the it's it's I guess it's like the, the you know the the Adani mine um, you know they're trying to build a build a, a rail line through it and it's like the Aboriginal people are saying well you can't build build it because it's ours and they've just rewritten the laws and said oh yeah you can do, you can do that now and it's like well if that land is not of value then they'll give it to the Aboriginal people if it is of value then they'll just rewrite the laws to to circumvent it and yeah, it's happening in Sydney with West Connects. You can buy this land and you can be part of the Australian dream until we need it. And then it, you're, you don't have rights, regardless of um, class or race or ethnicity. I have a question about if Australia was not federated as a single nation, would you still in Melbourne feel that Asia was your neighbour? Mm. It is somehow the nation of Australia that is holding the the population-heavy southern parts of Australia to any kind of caring. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the other thing I was thinking about when, like, my view from here, and I was thinking, well, I'm going to be in Brisbane, so, you know, the view from Brisbane is obviously the connection with Asia is a lot, it's a lot closer. Um, uh, I'm sure that the view from Melbourne would be New Zealand, probably. <laughs> I, I will open it to other questions, because I have a lot of questions, but maybe some other people have a question or two before we get the whole group up here to wrap up. Yeah? You were talking about like uh, what Australia thinks of our neighbours geographically. What do you think geographically our neighbours think of us? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there's 
dozens of countries and dozens of different governments that are changing all the time and billions of people, 60% of the population lives in Asia of the whole world. So there's a lot of people and a lot of different viewpoints. But I would, I would generally say that there are very few countries in Asia that think we're part of Asia or, or are Asian. You know, we, we are a, a sort of white anomaly like New Zealand, I guess, in their part of the world. And we do play an important role, but I think there are some countries that definitely think that we're a US deputy. Um, yeah. Another one other question? Yeah? I might just add to that. I'm part of a group called the Asian Producers Platform, APP, and um, it's made up of Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and Australia. And when we had our first session all together over in Seoul, the first thing that came up was, why is Australia here? Mm. Why are we part of this? We're not Asian. Mm. And that led to some really interesting conversations around shared understandings and what is culture. So um, I can see myself when I travel somewhere like Canada or the UK or the US and there's an ease of movement and there's an understanding of that culture that is very different from those Asian countries. So I throw that out there. Mm. It would be interesting if um, Far North Queensland got their wish and were Brexited from Queensland and then they were their own state and then Brisbane would be geographically the same distance from Asia but um, bureaucratically much further. Like Brisbane's only an hour and a half within Queensland from the New South Wales border. So there's something interesting to me about... I mean, there's a Brisbane-based comedian called Damien Power who puts it excellently that our nationwide broadcasting system is the only thing that gives us the... that upholds the belief that we are a single nation. And if it goes, then... This, like the people at the coast develop their own language and rituals and the people up in Logan have their own dance styles and that all starts disintegrating again and then it becomes much more of a gradient. Uh, I'd like to invite all the artists and Courtney back up on stage and just throw it out if any of you have any other musings. Um, Maybe we can get rid of the Australian flag as well. <laughs> There's... <laughs> Oh yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta share the mic. Otherwise it's just the two white dudes with the mics. <laughs> it's a little bit too common. Ah, oh, we've had a go. any of the artists feel like they walked off stage and thought shit I forgot that thing that's really important that I need to say I would like it if perhaps someone in the audience had a question that they are interested to throw out to anybody rather than specifically at someone.
was just interesting why you guys were musing about physical distance in this conversation when how much does that actually matter these days? Like physical distance from, you know, like the idea of a neighbour being someone within close proximity to you. How much does that matter these days, like actual physical distance? I think it matters different amounts depending on your, like mobility. Mobility is a massive thing. So which passport you have and your disposable income. That's when physical distance matters. And if you have both, like if you have a good part, like a German passport and you got some euro, doesn't matter. But if you have a Sri Lankan passport and you have Philippine pesos, it matters a lot. Sure, but those things seem to be distances that are all um, constructs of various cultures and societies. Well, and of the speed that a plane goes, and of like the people that will let you on it or not. And I spoke with um, a professor in KL who said that he feels very part of the um, Malaysia-Philippines culture and world. And he's not a visitor when he's in Indonesia or Philippines, but, a, but when he's in Vietnam or Australia, he's a visitor. And so in that respect, it's the shared cultures for sure. personally I was way more comfortable I guess with Susan's in the seams because they're like all personal feelings and shit and I'm like I'm up in that jam and then when you started sprouting some real world facts to me I was like oh god what mangoes gas is in the ocean what <laughs> I don't know it all seems so complex you know and I feel like with your feelings you can't be wrong <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah. How did the curators uh, decide who you were going to pick for this? I'll answer that because when I saw the slide, I said, we didn't curate this. <laughs> we're facilitators. Oh, we owned it. We did. So we were, we were given this delightful panel to work with, but it all unfolded from there. Uh, I think... It, Susan made a good point about what you know and what you don't know and what you care about and what you don't care about and how those things cross over like a Venn diagram. Um, and the discussions I had with Courtney was like, all right, well, how can we be useful to these artists in getting out their, their truth bombs in their gems? Because most of the practice of being an artist is like that Harry Potter thing where Dumbledore is pulling the memory like a wisp out of his brain and putting it down so he can look at it. And he's like, that's the wrong one. That's gibberish. And you just keep doing that painful process. And so we just tried to see if we could assist and make it less painful. 
And hopefully it's so invisible that you imagine that all of these people are always as articulate and concise and insightful. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Different type of distance. I was like, I completely agree. Like, I think it might be distances in terms of a culture, understanding, willingness to understand and contribute and have a conversation. I think those distances are way more relevant than talking about physical distances these days. Because that was one of... I'm going to jump in here and say that was one of the things I was thinking about is that Martin, you were saying, you know, what's my view from here? And it's the back to Australia, like, which I found really interesting because I think everyone else's was very internalised and yours is looking out. And all I could think of was all of the, like, commonalities that are happening all of the time right where we are. And I was really interested, actually, to know why looking so far away to highlight those things when we're constantly putting blankets over the things that are happening very similarly here. I guess I was curious about that. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, it's just an interest of mine, so I guess that's where I went. And also, my work is about that at the moment, so that's, that's kind of where I went to. Um... And I, yeah, I do think that it is close, whether it's physical or, or emotional distance, I do think it is quite close to me. So, yeah, I guess that's just where I went. Um, in terms of um, there, being, there being a lot of issues here, yeah, of course there's a lot of issues here um, and there's a lot of issues over there and a lot I further I just mean specifically there, so. in terms of land occupation. Like, occup but also I'm trying to understand, like, I think for me I'm always like, but where does it sit, like, in the, you know, like, why are you so passionate about it? Like, what are you, you know, like, what spurs that kind of interest for you? Uh, I don't, I mean, I've always been interested in maps. I've always been interested in um, small units of countries. I've always been interested in nationalism. Um, like from a very young age, I knew all of the capital cities of every single country in the atlas, like just stuff like that. So for me, like there is actually a tangible thing that's connected right back to a, an interest, I think, for me. So it's not anything I can really go, this is why, yeah. It's interesting to me that um, when you look out, you realise that Australia only has three days' worth of fuel for the nation, and if the fuel stopped being shipped in, no-one would drive and a lot of power would go out. 
and then I guess it makes it very immediate. Yeah, and this is something that we've seen children, we experienced children today as well. Mm. Was that reflection of... Um, like It seems to get personal with family, I think. As it was my experience growing up in Darwin that there were a lot of inter-ethnic relationships and children from those relationships. And then shit got very personal because you knew people. And my mate who grew up in the Philippines and moved to Australia gets a much better deal on his Vodafone plan than I do because he can speak Tagalog to the call centre when he rings them up. And then it becomes really personal. It becomes very immediate. And I wonder about, for any of us that have um, multi-ethnic or racial relationships or children or family if that makes it more personal or if it makes the world smaller or if it makes the world bigger. I'm talking about Aussiness. <laughs> and if your children are going to be Aussie and if your children are going to be Aussie and if my children are going to be Aussie and what that kind of Aussiness is, is it the, is it the Austral- Australasian Aussie? Aussie Australasian? Or is it the like perpetuation of the idea that the the first fleet came with. But isn't Asia just a Western construct anyway? Um, Sorry, I just... (laughs) That's maybe for another conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I'm interested in bringing it really personal now and saying, like, okay, for each one of us artists up here on stage, how do we consider ourselves where we are? And how do we consider our blood relations and where they are with us or not with us? Are you asking us where our families came from? See, like, how the conciseness drops away? (laughs) I want to know... Your view from here is as a visitor, is as a local, is as someone with one generation or 50 generations of history, and is as someone who's raising children or not, is as someone who is raising children who will be Asian Australian or raising children who will be Australian. Like, I want to know those things and how you see... Like, when you, you're standing here and you're looking out, we've heard that, and now I say, when you're standing here and you're looking straight down at your own two feet, what are you seeing? I live in a family with four sons. I think of us as global. Their partners are all have other um, ethnic backgrounds, 
and I would like to think of us as a global thinking, doing, being family. My turn? That's a, I don't know that there's an answer. Half of me came, I think, on a, a many, many different ways. Half of me is first-generation Australian, with my family being refugees, with my father being born in a camp. Um, but I know that I present as a privileged white Australian person who feels uncomfortable living on stolen land but has nowhere else to go. And my daughter is a human, I think, who has a lucky existence to be, you know, presenting the way she does on this land at this time. It's a really um, loaded question. I feel like a lot of things ran through my head. One is that I'm, I never really thought about different classifications of Australianism and then maybe I am fortunate enough in my white privilege to never have my nationality questioned, right? On the other hand, then if I think of different Australianisms and then I think of my family who are some sort of vague white colonial situation, I don't know where we're from. We just were there one day. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but the, in terms of living culture of, you know, like... Um, they're kind of rural regional people with um, a very different set of values and um, way of life to me. And I would definitely, our both, if you're going to call them Australianisms, are not very compatible. So which leads me to think, why are these terms useful and why would I bother using them if the people who are my blood relatives and I don't share a similar culture, actually, and don't get along in that cultural way in a lot of ways and obviously in other ways we do so it's like what's the use of I don't know I'm not sure if I would have any children <laughs> but one day if I had definitely uh, she or he would be uh, Australian Iranian Australian a Middle Eastern Australian Asian Mm, it's not what I'm choosing, but yeah, definitely the first is Australian with any definition for being Australian and also mm, as a mother probably <laughs> I would give my think to my children uh, my my dad is Scottish, my mum was South African, uh, my partner's mum is Portuguese, her dad is Chinese Timorese, um, and so our daughter is something, like four different kinds of things, so I guess that's Australian. It really seems like the view from right here is that we are... Uh, everything, but at least we're together. <laughs> are, are there any final questions from an audience? Okay. Yes? I have a question. I have a statement just based on all those answers. Um, when I think about my own um, 
relationship with being Australian. To me, it's always depended on who I'm around and how they see Australia and Australia. And whether I want to be associated with that way of being viewed. So actually, when I'm in Australia, people I surround myself with, I'm probably pretty ashamed of being Australian most of the time because of my privilege. But when I'm overseas in some countries, I totally adopt being an Aussie. My Oka comes out, all those values that are loved by other countries sometimes. You know, I let them be at the forefront of who I am, and then other countries they don't want to be associated with that. And so they're popped away again. And I think um, it's interesting. It's like I don't like about the way I play with my nationality, but just. There's, we have to wrap up just because there's a show about to start in the foyer that you're all welcome to go to. It starts in three minutes. And if you have other things to speak to the artists about, you can. And if they don't, if they're not comfortable talking to you, then, I don't know, Facebook them instead. <laughs> but also, anything that's happened tonight is recorded and it'll be at wombatradio.com.au as a podcast in a few minutes. So thank you to all of the artists.